0: Hello, hello, hello. This is episode three of the Social Issue and Policy Analysis podcast that we are doing for HSS 487. So, I'm just going to get started and do a quick snapshot of the population I've been working with, the issues, and statistics. So, domestic violence impacts pretty much every background um, with ethnicity, different ethnicities, socioeconomic statuses, races, genders, sexual orientations, and nationalities. Um, But certain populations are still disproportionately affected. According to Karen Heimer, who wrote about the findings from the the National Crime Victimization Survey, Native American women's rates of non-fatal intimate partner violence were more than twice as high from 2001 to 2005 as black and white women's rates. This racial group tends to stand out the most when comparing demographic victimization rates, since black and white women tend to have similar rates of intimate partner violence. Additionally, rates of intimate partner violence for Latino and non-Latino men and women tend to have little difference. One of the reasons that may explain this lack of difference is the individual characteristics and social context that can increase or decrease someone's vulnerability with victimizations. For example, researchers have found that black women experience higher victimization for all violent crimes when compared to white women. But if researchers control for income, community disadvantages, and family composition, then the rates of victimization are virtually the same. Researchers concluded that the inequalities and structural factors contributed to risk for violence across ethnic groups. Additionally, women women disproportionately have higher rates of intimate partner violence victimization. From 2001 to 2005, 22% of non-fatal violence against women was committed by intimate partners compared to 4% of non-fatal violence against men that was perpetrated by intimate partners. From 1993 to 2001, 85% of intimate partner violence victims were women. Sexual violence and domestic violence are often interconnected. 33% of of rapes are committed by a current or former spouse, boyfriend, or girlfriend. Between 40 and 45% of women in abusive relationships will also be sexually assaulted during the course of their relationship. According to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, between 10 to 14 percent of women will be raped at some point during their marriages. Next, we're going to jump into some historical background um, that talks about legislation, policy, and significant events. So, um, something I actually learned a little bit ago, but I was reminded through this um, project, was that the uh, SPCA, which is still around today, the American Society for Prevention and Cruelty to Animals, which who play really sad but beautiful commercials, um, was founded in 1866 before there were any child welfare or domestic violence agencies or organizations. Um, And so that was really interesting. Like, we love saving puppies, but, you know, we also love, like, helping women and children. So that was just a quick fun fact, but that was really, like, the first hallmark of okay let's actually really care about living things in america i know that sounds bad but i mean hey okay so some other significant events alabama was the first state to rescind the legal right of men to beat their wives in 1871 um maryland was actually the first state to pass a law that makes wife beating a crime which is punishable by 40 lashes of year 40 lashes or a year in jail in 1882. Um, North Carolina in 1886 declared a criminal indictment uh, cannot be brought against a husband unless the battery is so great as to result in permanent injury, endanger their life, or is malicious beyond all all reasonable bounds. Um, And then in the late 1800s with Queen Elizabeth's rise to the English throne, lawmakers began enacting reforms for women. Um, Wives can no longer be kept under lock and key. Life-threatening beatings are considered grounds for divorce. And wives and daughters can no longer be sold into prostitution. Um, And then in America in 1919, um, women were finally allowed the right to vote with the 19th Amendment. Um, Again, I just want to briefly mention that um, when we're talking about a lot of these women's rights movements, a lot of it was very, um, white woman led for the most part. Um, especially leading up even now, um, there's a lot of white feminism. Um, and so I do want to acknowledge that there was a lot of, um, white feminists who were hallmarks and who did good work, but also did it at the expense and continually oppressed women of color. Okay. So speaking of, um, the women's movement. So in the 1950s and 60s, obviously there was civil rights movement, anti-war movement, um, and the black liberation movement, which kind of laid the foundation for the feminist movement to kind of launch too. In 1962, New York domestic violence cases are transferred from criminal court to civil court where only civil procedures apply the husband never faces as harsh penalties as he would suffer if he was found guilty in criminal court for assaulting a stranger um so yeah not good um in 1965 congress began passing laws that prohibited prohibited discrimination against women in employment and requiring equal pay for equal work um in 1966 beating as cruel and inhumane treatment becomes grounds for divorce in new york but the plaintiff must establish that a sufficient number of beatings have taken place. In 1967, the state of Maine opens one of the first shelters in the United States um, for women who are being beaten. Um, and then we fast-tracked to the 1960s and 70s, and the, libera- the women's liberation movement has really started. Um, it claimed that what goes on in the privacy of people's homes is, is deeply political. So, you know, we have the, you know you know, 40s and 50s and 60s, or really the 40s and 50s, where it was very normal not to talk about what was going on at home, what people were doing to their wives, and now in the 60s and 70s, that expectation is lowered a bit. In the 1970s, um, women started coming together a bit more, with African Americans seeking their equal rights. As a result, women started to talk about the violence against women in the forms of spouse abuse and sexual assault. Women recognized three major contribution, contributors to the violence against them, economic disparity, traditional gender role expectations, and a criminal justice system that did not hold men accountable for the violence against women. From this, the battered women's movement was born. Um, another ground, ground, ground-breaking piece of um legislation that passed in the 70s was title 9 so title 9 is a federal civil rights law that was passed um as part of the education amendments of 1972 this law protects people from discrimination based on sex in education programs or activities that receive um in activities that receive federal financial assistance so title 9 specifically states that quote No person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or actively receiving federal financial assistance. Title IX applies to every institution receiving federal financial assistance from the Department of Education, including state and local educational agencies, educational programs, and activities that receive federal funds from the Department of Education must operate in a non-discriminatory manner. Also, a recipient may not retaliate against any person for opposing an unlawful educational practice or policy, or because a person made charges, testified, or participated in any complaint action under Title IX. Title IX was originally utilized to increase young women's... Sorry any complaint action against Title IX, end quote. So Title IX was originally utilized to increase um, young women's access to sports. At least that's how it was first utilized. Um, this was pretty much K-12, university. This was like a big deal. Um, and essentially, a lot of that is why, um, for example... Elon does not have a men's lacrosse team, but they have a women's lacrosse team because they have to. Elon has to make up for the numbers because the football team is so big and essentially all male that they need to make up the numbers for female athletes to be um, in compliance with Title IX and giving pretty much equitable funding towards certain programs. Now, does that happen all the time? Not really, but that's a conversation for a different day. You know that, yeah. We're spilling tea today. Um, in 1975 most states allow wives to bring criminal actions against a husband who inflicts injury upon her um in 1977 women around the country annually marched to take back the night with the walk um which is like this walk in march um to kind of regain their presence and power um and they were pissed so they walked and they were they were really cool um, in 1979, still only 14 states provided funds for domestic violence shelters. Okay, now this is the big one. The Victims of Crime Act, VOCA, was passed by Congress and signed into law by President Ronald Reagan on October 12, 1984, establishing the Crimes Victims Fund. Millions of dollars are deposited annually into the fund from criminal fines, penalties, forfeited bail balance and special assessments collected by the federal government. Crime Victim Fund dollars don't come from taxpayers since they come from all these other funding sources. Um, the Crime Victims Fund releases a set amount each year based on um, you know, federal appropriations. Um, states apply each year for these funds via the VOCA, VOCA Formula Grant Program. States then re-grant VOCA Victim assistant funds to eligible public and nonprofit organizations slash victim service providers within their state. So, this is how the Family Justice Center gets a lot of their funding, um, which is really cool. Also, in 1988, the Victims of Crime Act is amended to make awards available for the first time to victims of domestic violence. Okay, I have a ton more, so I'm going to try to really hit the super important ones um excuse me congress passed the violence against women act or VAWA of 1994 as part of the violent crime control and law enforcement act of 1994 the protections and provisions afforded by the 1994 legislation were subsequently expanded and uh, improved in the violence against women act of 2000 um and if you didn't know um, this bill needs to be, this act needs to be renewed every couple of years. And so it was recently renewed. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of Republicans vote against it. I really don't understand why, but they do. Um, so since the passage of, so. Here, let me backtrack a little. This 1994 bill was the first comprehensive federal legislative package designed to end violence against women. VAWA included provisions on rape and battering that focused on prevention, funding for victim services, and evidentiary matters. It included the first federal criminal law against battering and a requirement that every state accord full faith and credit to orders of protection issued anywhere in the United States. Since the passage of VAWA... Um, there's been a paradigm shift in how the issue of violence against women is addressed um, and so this was a really groundbreaking bill um, and VAWA funds are administered by the office on violence against women which is a component of the department of justice um, that was completed in, that was created in 1994 through VAWA if that makes sense Um, something I also wanted to touch on and obviously like domestic violence and sexual assault are very interconnected, but different. Um, so I did kind of want to bring up, you know, Title IX and I also wanted to bring up how Title IX is currently being used in conjunction with sports. Um, that was really big in the 80s when it passed, when it was a thing, 70s when it was a thing. Um, in 2015, a documentary called The Hunting Ground was released, which explains the journey of two survivors of sexual assault at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and their grassroots movement to hold UNC accountable under Title IX for not protecting them and, enda- and therefore endangering them um, because of the sexual assaults that were occurring on campus. And um, there was a lot of like discouraging students to go to the police and file a report. Um, And they also rendered numbers for sexual assaults on campus, which is not good. Um, This quickly became a national movement, and the Department of Education originally announced that they were investigating 55 schools for violating Title IX. In 2017... There were 304 investigations of 223 institutions across the United States. As of 2021, 197 cases have been resolved and 305 remain open. And in 2018, the Department of Education did find UNC in violation of Title IX since the school failed to adopt, quote, prompt and equitable resolutions of sexual harassment and sexual assault claims. So that's the tea on that. All right. So next we're kind of going to, you know, go into, um, descriptions of, you know, existing federal and state programs, agencies, and how, you know, VOCA and VAWA, I know that those are two different, they, they sound weird, VOCA and VAWA, (laughs) um, how they kind of blend into essentially family justice centers all across North Carolina and all across the U.S., um, so, Voca Vawa in the Fa- the Family Violence Prevention Services Act (FVPCA) provides lots of federal funding to several different kinds of agencies. Voca uses non-taxpayer money from the Crime Victims Fund, which we talked about earlier, um, for programs that directly. That directly service victims of crime, including state formula victim assistance grants. These funds, which come from fines paid by federal criminals, like we talked about, um, support services to 4 million victims of all types of crimes annually um, through 4,400 direct service agencies such as domestic violence shelters, rape crisis centers, and child abuse treatment programs. VAWA's specific programs include. The services training officers and prosecutors stop state formula grant program, which supports coordinated community responses for domestic um, and sexual violence as well as specialized services. The civil legal, the civil hang in with me there. It's a Friday. The civil legal assistance for victims lab program, which addresses the civil legal needs for victims, provides practical solutions in long term. Stability for victims and their children, and helps to lower incidents of domestic violence. The services for rural victims, which is a grant that enables communities to develop services to meet the unique needs of victims in rural areas. The transitional housing grant uh, program provides an essential continuum between emergency emergency shelter and permanent safe housing for survivors fleeing violence. Which family justice center um, works with family abuse services who has a shelter. So that was pretty cool. Um, the improving criminal justice response program, which increases offender accountability and reduces homicide. The sexual assault services program, state formula grant program, which funds rape crisis centers and services. So, um, all of those programs pretty much feed into a comprehensive plan, which, you know, um, states apply to all these like grants especially for I believe it was the Voca one. Let me double check. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So through the states apply each year through the Voca Formula Grant program um and then that like, so North Carolina applies for that program and then, um, agencies, um, apply for that program in North Carolina and other States. And then, um, the VOCA victim assistant fund program then gives the money to these agencies. So that's how it kind of works. I know it's a little confusing. It was to me at first. All right. Um, Next, we're going to move on to a discussion of specific, you know, marginalized populations, like I mentioned before, um, Native American women, um, the historical evolution and existence of these programs and just like some main concepts um, and just applying to human service studies um, in general. Cool. So as I mentioned earlier, Native American women have extremely high rates of domestic violence and intimate partner violence. One way in which we can analyze the social issue for this specific, specific population is by using the lens of intersectionality and master statuses. Native American women have two identities that automatically jump out to me personally when looking at domestic violence. Being a woman is considered an oppressive identity to have, um, in addition to being a person of color. In this case, Native Americans' racial identity has been... Um, Native Americans in general have just been, you know, disenfranchised, murdered, um, and exploited them personally and their land for hundreds of years. Um, The opposite identities, which would be considered the master identities, would be a white male. Um, Additionally, there are several systems which influence um, this social issue for domestic violence um, against Native American women. At the macro level, institutions like the United States government have serious power over Indian reservations um, and the indigenous population historically. Obviously, um, the Trail of Tears is an early example of this. Um, they can also control like funding and policy, um, like the Indian Health Service. At the meso level, different communities and organizations are interacting with each other, like members of a family, in um, interactions they have with other groups. Um, So this is really community-based, norm-based, culturally-based, where, um, you know, domestic violence could be very normalized in groups, in in some groups and communities, Um, and then that can, you know, make domestic violence worse for women, Native American women. Um, And lastly, at the micro level, um, you have an individual Native American woman who are getting beaten um and they also have very high murder rates um unfortunately um and there are a lot of missing indigenous women um and so all of these systems kind of and identity is playing into this huge problem there's also you know issues with mental health like native americans also have very high um, Native Americans who live on reservations, um, unfortunately have high rates of alcohol abuse and, um, suicide rates, um, and there's also a lot of poverty too, and so there's a lot of social issues playing into this. Lastly, I wanted to talk about one evidence, um, based, um, solution I found. Um, it was honestly kind of hard to find evidence-based solutions for intervening in domestic violence, um, I don't know why, but it was kind of hard to find. I'm not sure why. Um, I think that would be an interesting thing to dive into in general um, about why it's hard to find evidence-based interventions for domestic violence. Um, I think it's such a complicated issue. That may be one of the reasons, but then again, there are a lot of complicated issues that have evidence-based practices. Okay, so the one that I found was the Community Advocacy Project, which is an evidence-based program designed by Chris Sullivan to help survivors of intimate partner abuse regain control of their lives. So it's really an uh, empowerment-based model. This project, which is strengths-based and survivor-centered, can be incorporated into many domestic violence programs fairly easily and inexpensively, which means it's sustainable, which is awesome. The interve- intervention occurs in survivors' homes and communities in a short term, about 10 weeks, but intensive, four to six hours per week. Trained advocates help survivors. <coughs> oh, excuse me. I'm sorry you had to hear my cough. Trained advocates help survivors work on their self identified goals in the program. Has been successful with those leaving the relationship as well as staying in the relationship. So, this program isn't trying to tell victims what to do. They're not trying to be like, you need to get out of this relationship. They're trying to really um, build safety and, like, they're trying to build, um, rebuild, like, a sense of control in these women's lives and have a control in their lives. So evidence for the effectiveness of this model has been demonstrated through um, a longitudinal study, which was two years, and an experimental design, and the results have been published in peer-reviewed journals. Um, The Community Advocacy Project has also been modified with different populations. So, like, they give the example of at-risk adolescent girls and is being Im- implemented in a number of states and countries. Materials are in the process of being translated into Spanish um, and seeing if it applies in countries like Mexico. So that was my podcast. I'm so sorry. This was so long. I always have issues speaking for long durations of time because I get all stuttery and stuff. Um, but thank you so much for listening And thank you so much for the extension. I was, I don't know why. I just, I was not feeling good. I was, Sarah went down at the Family Justice Center. It was bad. Um, My boss was like, go home. And I was like, thank you. (laughs) So thank you so much for that extension. And I hope you have a great day.